What did um? Fuck your toe, fuck your toe. doing it for us, they're doing it for Rome, and they're doing it for their own 
purposes and they're usually malevolent. Um, and Yehuda ben Gerim uh, ratted out Shimon Bar Yochai. He let the Roman government know that Shimon Bar Yochai is no fan, but is a critique, is a critic of the Roman government. As a result of which, a death sentence went out for Shimon Bar Yochai, and he had literally to run for his life. So in the same way that we were thrown into our cave because of fear for our life, Shimon Bar Yochai and his son Rabbi Elazar are in their cave because they fear for their life. What I want to do, there's a number of moments in this story, and at each one of these moments, I want to just kind of really unpack what happened. So if you'll look, I'm going to read it. For the, I mean, this was sent to everyone anyway, but I am going to, uh, to just read this uh, piece, and then we'll double-click on how they must have experienced it. So they're running from the Romans, and they find a cave, and this cave is remote, and this cave is total social distance, and this cave is they see nobody, and this cave is there's a miracle. God supplies them with a magic uh, spring, Poland spring, and there's just constant pure water and magic carob, uh, and they can eat and drink, and here's we go. Then they went and hid themselves in a cave. Food was thus no longer brought to them, but a miracle happened, and a carob tree and a spring of water were created for them, and they drew their sustenance from these resources. The Gemara recounts their daily routine in hiding. They would shred their clothes and would sit covered in sand up to their necks. All day long, they would study together. And when the time for prayer arrived, they would dress, cover themselves, and pray. Then they would return and shed their clothes, immersing themselves in sand once again, so that their clothes would not wear out from prolonged use. So here's the first, first vignette. Uh, a typical day in the cave, and we're going to learn this last 12 years, is uh, they see nobody but one another. They eat nothing but carob. They drink nothing but water. And they do nothing but learn and pray. This is day after day for 12 years. How are they feeling about this, dear colleagues? They don't even have toilet paper. <laughs> and they don't have toilet paper. I, you know, my, my, my first reaction is like, you know, drinking the water in the carob, it sounds like Tom Brady, but that's a, that's a side. Um, anyway, it's, um, I can't, I, you know, it, I really, f I, I almost feel like that. You know, um, the past year, since last March, you know, I see the five of the four of you um, and a few people in the building. And then at home, you know, this is this is me and Emma, which is my, my student. So the two of us just see each other and really nobody else. You know, we talk to each other on Zoom. And so I, I and it's there's a there's a, you know, it just you, you become you become very insular. So to the point that that you almost sometimes don't even want to talk to other people. Right. Or, the, or sometimes that you just don't even, you know, just even want to just, you know, just be just by yourself. Just Are you, know. you happy with that existence or not happy with that existence? It's a, you know, it's a mixed bag because there are times that this is, this is perfect. This is great. And there are other times that it's not, you know, there are times that, you know, I just got to get out. I want to go do something, you know, so what should we do? Should we go see a movie? Can't go see a movie. Should we go bowling? Can't go bowling. You know, should we do something else? can't do something else yeah so there are times that it's just you know it's just the two of you i mean i i'm thinking like they study torah you know uh, probably like what like uh, 16 hours a day who knows what right um there's got to be a point where it's just like it's just it, it this diminishing returns and that i can't imagine that the relationship there's a point where the relationship 
it, it, it's, it probably begins by getting stronger, but then there's probably a point where it ends up, you know, also beginning to become weakening because you can only be with this one person so much before it just becomes, you know, a little more difficult. I feel like they're living the Instagram quarantine life of like what you're supposed to be doing out there. I feel like, you know, my my children are studying Phineas and Ferb and, you know, not Torah all day long. And there's a sense of like, how could you have, how should you have used your pandemic time? Like we should have learned how to knit. We should have learned how to bake the perfect sourdough bread. Like we could be out hiking and biking and, you know, in engaging nature. Like my kids could have learned a, a whole new language, right? Like what is it that, how were you using your time in the cave? And there's some sense of like, oh my, wait a minute, like, where is it? Is it time? But we didn't do all those things that we were supposed to have done. And on a second point, I deeply resonate with the taking off the clothes in order that they not wear out. Because uh, having just tried on my children's shul clothes, my boys' shul clothes, with them this morning, they don't fit. And like none of the clothes that they were wearing last year to come to shul work for them today. And one of the women who was in the group said, Lululemon yoga skirt pants. And I said, great, why? And she said, she has not worn a pair of pants with a zipper for a year. Um, because every day it's skirt pants. So there is, just for those you know, Tom, is there another, can I have another mic? Yeah. Is this type of on the phone? In the meantime, Rava is going to ask you a question. They studied 12 years in a cave. They didn't have enough clothes to take, but they took enough books to study. Always. I don't think they have books. But no. <laughs> there were no books no, in no. those days. They are, they're downloading the Zohar from the Shema. <laughs> they are, they're not so doing books. Do they, 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 they have Sepharia there? It's not Sepharia. They're, they're they are Sepharia. <laughs> yeah, they are Sepharia. They've memorized all of They have everything in, they in have their everything heads. They need in their brains, and they are literally scanning the heavens right. to download and wisdom right for the future. now is there so anyway um they're not worried about clothes and they have their own version of lululemon pants because they're not worrying about that and they're just completely focused on what they love they love prayer they love god they love one another and they love learning torah how do you know that? so well that's because that's I'm what they're sure doing the guys this guy you know first of all i have to say you know i have bar mitzvah students and most commonly i ask them at some point who are you working your bar mitzvah speech with? And he says, they say, one of the rabbis. And I say, which rabbi? <laughs> and they say, well, I don't know how it's called. <laughs> the man, the one with the, the two women, which one? The one with the curly hair or the straight hair? <laughs> so, first of and all, your there point are, would be? There are five rabbis here. I don't remember one of them. In, okay. this, in this Talmud tractate, there are five rabbis. Anyway, so the two rabbis that go, the two guys that goes to the cave. Father, you know, son. Yeah, what's the name of them? Shimon Bar Yochai and Rabbi Yochai. Thank you, Garden Schwartz. Now I remember your name because of that. So he must be questioning himself for 10 years about what he said. Don't you think? Ha. Huh. In other words, oh, that's very interesting. Right. So he, he's filled with kind of some self-laceration. Why did I say it? Why wasn't I an idiot? My whole life changed. 
Exactly. So there's a whole, so there's a whole ruffled interior life. Regretting. Regretting that here we are. I'm cut off from everybody because I'm stuck studying Torah every day, and I can't get out. I can't see. I would say. So you're, so you're, so Elias, you're okay. So your read, and we'll we'll come back to that in a minute. I just want to get Elise on this first one yet. Your read is that he's fundamentally not so okay with it, and he's kind of um, uh, cr critiquing himself. For saying stuff that caused this whole mess to begin with. Yes, absolutely. Okay, Eliza, what's your read? Are they happy or unhappy? So I just want to respond to that because I, I think this is a little bit of a Mordechai moment here. Like, I've always read Shimon Bar Yochai as like, kind of, he know he can't not know the impact of his words, and he can't not know like the text is very clear to, to to set up this scene that like you know there's going to be listeners and like that's that's a thing that happens in the in the Roman community. So. <clears throat> I've always imagined that he was just kind of like, I don't care about consequences. I don't care what it does to my family. I don't care what it does to anybody. I'm just going to speak the truth because I'm a wise Torah teacher and that's what I do. And so I, I'm not sure, like, it feels like getting to the cave is in some ways ideal for him because he gets to, he gets to do the one thing that he really cares about doing. He is away, you know, the, the text is really clear that he has some complicated family relationships. He's avoiding those family dynamics. He doesn't have to deal with any of the big family gatherings. It's just him and his son. They get along. They do great. And he doesn't have to deal with clothes. He doesn't have to deal with food prep. Like, his life just got way better. And they're downloading the Zohar. They're downloading the spiritual technology that's going to sustain future generations. So, so Wait, wait, wait. You don't think at any point he misses his wife? The text makes their relationship sound rather acrimonious. Like, the text makes her seem like she is... Uh, annoying, cloying, like even though she saves their lives and feeds them in the Beit Midrash, like it, it does not paint her in a very favorable light. Yeah, place. there's a whole separate, there's a whole misogyny riff that you can do from this story. You get it right which, here. The yeah, minds yeah, yeah. of women there's are a, easily there's, swayed. There's a, right, there's a misogyny riff. There's also, it is also. You just, said it. I didn't want to read that no, loud. I'm also you just know, noting. I'm just more a, concerned about the consequences at home. Right. No, I'm also just <laughs> noting and observing this is a separate conversation. There's also kind of like a Jewish racism. Piece too, because the person who spreads the calumny about Shimon Bar Yochai is Yehuda Ben Gerim. Yehuda Ben Gerim means Yehuda, the son of converts. So there's kind of like a sense that you can't really trust converts, even though the Talmud otherwise repudiates that version entirely and says you can't even ask somebody if they're, when somebody becomes a Jew, then there's no more asterisk. So that's kind of mainstream Jewish point of view. But there, this particular text is unlovely, both as regards misogyny, separate conversation, and as regards Jewish racism, separate conversation. But here we are. But your your point, Aliza, is that um, Shimon Bar Yochai is a kind of deeply spiritual sort. He's the founder of, uh, of of Kabbalah and of right and the Zohar, and this allows him to clear his calendar from all distractions. No emails, no meetings, no deliverables, no monthly status report, no profit and loss, no grocery shopping, no laundry, no nothing. Just I get to study Torah and think. So for a person who is like a cat rabbi, so to speak, um, a person who's kind of reclusive, he's very happy. So pick wait, up. So at least will you pick up? With, yeah, wait, my yeah. So I just want to pick up. Pick up to the next vignette. The Gemara continues. Uh, the Gemara continues. They dwelt secluded in the cave for twelve years. Then one day, Elijah the prophet came and stood at the mouth of the cave, and he proclaimed, Who will inform the son of Yochai that the Caesar has died, and the decree has been annulled? Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai and his son heard this, and they emerged from the cave. Okay. Now, the uh, Talmud here, like the, the Torah that doesn't speak about interior life, like you don't know how, what Abraham is feeling on the way to the binding of Isaac, 
it just says Nafku. Shimon Bar Yochai and his son emerged after 12 years. And it, so my question to you guys is, how do they feel? Because they're like, they're, it's like our moment now, right? Like the, the, the pandemic's kind of sort of ending. You can kind of leave. You can start to think about reentry. How do they feel? Lord Dan Essen, this, how do they feel? This is a, uh, the 12 years in the cave is a, to a total failure. Because what's the purpose of studying Torah? You know, Torah Lishma, yes, and all, all this mystical stuff. But the purpose of, what's the purpose of Torah? The purpose of Torah is, the purpose of Torah is to teach us how to interact and react and be with people and the world in the most moral possible way. And so the 12 years in the cave is 100% failure because we see what happens afterwards, right? Um, so so uh, th this, is, this is my take on this. So they, they've been there for 12 years. What have they learned? They've learned, I, they've really learned, they've learned nothing. They haven't because, um, you know, what the whole, what he did was wrong at the beginning. And when he comes back out, he hasn't learned, he hasn't learned anything. So, okay. Well, so. I, I, can I just jump on there? I, I think there's a distinction um, between hasn't learned anything and, and sort of which category of learning is he doing? And I agree with you, you know, Amara Rabbi Akiva, right? What's the Klal Gadol in the Torah? You know, you guys can all sing it. It's beautiful. Um, but like, yes, on the one hand. On, on the other hand, as Eliza is saying, you know, this is just this powerful mystic Torah that, that, emerges from this space and from this place and and they do have a real sense of of depth and connection and fire for God and they've really literally fire for God and they they just are passionately caught up in the in the world of connection between here and here right and and I think like there's something really important about that for us now right because there there are some ways in which in our solitude, we have found new depth, some of us, in, in, in ourselves or in our families, in, in the connections that we have in some of the still small places. A and yet, when they try to go back, like, people aren't doing things the way that, that so, they do things. Right. So I know you haven't gotten So that, I, right. I, I just want to know at this moment, but we haven't yet had them encounter the farmer. I just want to know at the moment before they encounter the farmer, when they hear from Elijah, hey, it's time to go. You know, Governor Baker says we're reopening or we're increasing reopening. How do they feel before they've encountered anybody? They now know they have to leave the cave. They have to leave the cave. They have to leave yeah. their routine for 12 years. They have to actually see people again before they get to see the people. How do they feel when Governor Baker, Elijah the prophet, makes that first announcement? All right, two things before that. I agree with Dan Nesson. I don't agree with you, Michelle. Sorry about that. Uh, the second is that when I see Elijah at the top of the mountain, the only thing I could picture is tonight Elijah showing up and saying the pandemic is over. Mm, Wouldn't amen. be that a miracle? And I mean, I mean, I mean, yes. I mean. But with that being said, this will be very, very, I mean, we'll create so much fear and anxiety. Right. If Elijah did, just take that thought. If Elijah said the pandemic is over, you're free to go to shul tomorrow morning. No masks. If Elijah did that, right? Most people would not come to shul without masks. Most people would say, if we take your thought experiment, if Elijah the prophet said the pandemic is over, the virus is dead, we can go back without masks to your old life, most people would not come to shul. There'd still be a lot of trepidation about going to Fenway. There's just an ambivalence and an anxiety and an apprehension, and I got my brakes on. And I want to just, I just want to try to understand that. Elisa, do you understand that? Well, so 
I think there's a really important distinction in the text, which is Elijah doesn't say to them, it's time to leave your cave. He doesn't say to them, come out, come out wherever you are, like come back to civilization. Elijah says, who's going to tell these people that they could, that the decree against them, that the death sentence against them has been annulled? And that's a really important distinction because they sort of, they went to the cave without, in, in their intention going to the cave was to save their lives. But they weren't actually clear about what they were going to be doing in that cave. And they weren't clear about the significance of what they were going to be doing in that cave. And when they leave, they also leave without intention because they're not clear what they're doing leaving the cave. They're not clear what they're going back to. They're not clear why they're going back. They have no intention in going. And so it's this, this very weird in-between zone where I think part of the importance of <clears throat> our cave is like we have to be really clear about what's the work we've done in pandemic. What's the learning that I have done? And then if I'm going to leave the cave, I have to know what am I, what, why am I doing this? Why am I leaving quarantine? What is it that we have as a civilization accomplished? What is it as a community that we've accomplished? And what am I, what am I bringing with me? Where am I going to? Where are we going to? There's a lot of questions and none of that's answered. Is it enough to just say I stayed alive? I don't think so. I think what they see, or they stay alive and we see that's not enough. Okay, so let's see what happens. Lord Dennison, will you pick up because this got you very exercised as they venture back to civilization? Will you read that? We're on the bottom of page one. As they venture back to civilization. Okay. As they ventured back to civilization. Yeah. Sorry. As they ventured back to civilization, they saw some people who were plowing a field and sowing crops there. Angered by this, uh, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai declared, these people are forsaking the pursuit of the life of the world to come and occupying themselves instead with the concerns of the transitory life. And therefore, everywhere Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai and his son would cast their gaze, uh, the object of their vision would immediately be incinerated. Finally, a heavenly voice rang out and proclaimed to them, have you emerged from seclusion in order to destroy my world? Return to your cave. So let's pause, okay? So they come out, and they've got a chip on their shoulder, and they see a farmer working, and uh, Aliza, what happens and why? Uh, they are filled instantly with rage. Their eyes become like laser fire missiles and burn everything that they touch. And why? What did the farmer do to them? The farmer is just... Instead of busying himself with Torah, instead of focusing on the heavens, instead of deepening his connection to God and the mission of the Jewish people, he's working the fields. And Michelle, what's wrong with that? Oh, I'm, exact, <laughs> I'm exactly on the opposite side yeah. here. Yeah. Right. These so, two idiots are coming from the cave that the only thing that they did was study Torah, no human interaction. They don't know how to behave in the world, and right. they are coming to tell us what to do. Right. Well, so, so for me, it's about patterns, right? When when we get into our patterns and we've done things in a particular way in a particular time, I mean, you often see this in marriages when you know when a lovely bride and a groom come to you and they say, "But this is how we do Pesach." Like, obviously, this is how you do it. And the spouse says, "What are you talking about? <laughs> this is how we do it, and it's so obvious that you do it." that way and there becomes conflict over all sorts of small little um, pieces of behavior that actually really bring fire 
into the right. marriage, fire into the and and I think in some ways in retreating to our own lives here to our own caves we've all developed our fit we've all solidified whatever family pattern it is that we have thus making it really hard to think about external social interactions in quite the same way because obviously what we were doing was the right thing can i just try to make the case not for shimon ben yochai and rabbi elazar i'm not defending it but i do want to explain it and I had, and I was thinking about it just this morning on the walk to shul. Okay, um, I think it's totally understandable. It totally, I end, I get it 100. percent I'm walking to shul on Ward Street, and I see a woman walking with a dog, and she eyes me suspiciously because I'm a human, and I eye her suspiciously because she's a human, and we no, kind of no, do no, this. No. We no, no, no. Let me just finish. Let me just finish. We do this dance. Who's going to go this way? Who's going to go this way? And I don't want to see her, and she doesn't want to see me. And we go like this, and I manage to avoid a human. No, I think Good. she no, no, just she recognized you are the senior rabbi of Temple Emanuel. Yes. She's Jewish. He doesn't <laughs> want to come to shul. She's avoiding you, so you won't say to her, hey, we are not coming to shul. Are yes. you going to well, watch That, that was the pre-pandemic reality. But now, no, so what I, I will say that is was, that if, yeah. you, so if you're used to, like, people are the enemy because people are the virus. People are potentially the virus. And I think this is a real problem. We are going to have to learn how to be people again. When I walk, when you walk, when we walk, and we see somebody coming, we go that way, they go that way. And if that's what you've lived for 12 years, the only people that we see in our pod are each other and our immediate family. And beyond that, we don't see, right? Um, then you can kind of understand why uh, a person. By the way, to this week, uh, you know, at the shul, we were, uh, Andrews, catering by Andrews, was delivering uh, Pesach food to Temple Manual people and other people who were doing a pickup. And all along Ward, if, if any of you did that, you, you, you were in line in the car for a good long time. Like, all along Ward Street, there were people and cars. And I looked at it, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm not programmed anymore to process this. Like all these people, and I think that's what's going on, Dan. Yeah. So I, yeah, I agree. The the first question is, uh, what about the dog? The dog was happy to see you. But the other question is, uh, the the other thing is, I think, um, about, you know, um, the fact that that their reaction is so a hundred percent. You know, there's no there's no amelioration. There's no like there's no part part way. And I was thinking, I think it's the Kotzka Rebbe that tells the story about the wagon wheel. And, and the tefillin, if people don't know that story, you know, there's a person changing a wagon wheel, um, and he's very. Thank you, Bridichev. Thank you. So he's um, and he's wearing changing, and he's put, and he's wearing his tefillin, and he's davening while he's saying this, <coughs> and uh, and one person says, "Look at this terrible person. He's changing his wagon wheel while davening," and then the the uh, but the re- the other response is, "Look at how fabulous we are." Well, we can change a wagon. We can be in the world and also be connected with God. Mm. So there's no, you know, I'm, I'm lo- more looking for that. I mean, because the person changing the wheel wasn't in the cave right. for 12 years. Right. But I'm, I'm also with you. Like, um, you know, when in here in the building, you know, half the time, God forbid, I, I have to pull my mask out because I forgot to put it on. So as soon as soon as I go outside, I'm I'm exactly the opposite. So it, there's a lot of ways in which I'm 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 kind of with you in that in that right. feeling. Alive? So uh, yeah, I I have to agree with you that uh, regardless if you agree with these two guys or not, <coughs> Rabbi Garden Shorts and Rabbi Berger. Anyways, uh, I'm a guy now. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> no no no. 
No, I'm not Just going to go there. But keep... this could be, I was going to say that this could be a historic moment. Rabbi Elisa Berger defending a guy who leaves his wife and studies Torah all day long. It's, it's epic. Anyways, <laughs> so... Uh, I was going to say something I forgot. Oh no, I was I was I went to the copy machine yesterday. Yeah. I went to the copy machine and for a moment I started thinking on a typical Thursday afternoon at Temple Emmanuel before the pandemic, not in the not in the sanctuary, in our area. Bar mitzvah kids coming back and forth, passing by. Uh, so many of our our people that help us during our, our basic uh, things there, many more people working, many more offices open phone calls and this and that and people coming to your office for bar mitzvahs and weddings and stuff very hectic very hectic and i love the quietness of now it's like yeah. anytime i feel like i want to do something i want to study something in my office right and can so i just say so so I want, so I, again i don't want to defend shimon bar yochai and rabbi Lazar's, you know mean-spiritedness towards this nice little farmer over here but I understand, I just think there's an emotional rawness that comes. An emotional rawness is when you transition from a cave to beyond the cave. Okay, now let's pick up what happens next. Dan, you're, you're on a roll here. Return to your cave. So the two went and returned to the cave. And use your microphone, Dan. We rise, please. Right. Nine no. lines from the bottom of this. Okay, you know, I'll, I'll just read it. So the two went and returned to the cave, and they dwelled there another 12 months, a full year in all. At that point, they said to themselves, the sentence of evildoers in Gehenna endures for no more than 12 months. Perhaps our sentence has expired by now as well. A heavenly voice rang out and proclaimed, emerge from your cave. So they go back, they, they flunk re-entry. They flunk re-entry, they spend a baker dozen 13th year in the cave, and then they come out. Now, how are they feeling? Like, what are they thinking about? How does the 13th year differ in character and kind from the first 12? So I think one major difference is that there's a heavenly voice that's like, you're ready. Like, the timer on the oven went off. Like, it's actually ready to come out of the oven. I think previously, like, you know, it's like leaving the, pen leaving the quarantine before everybody's been vaccinated, before everybody has herd immunity, like leaving our safety practices before we're actually safe. Now they're they're ready to go. They they have brought to, together the the divine scholarly work that they've done in the cave with an awareness of the world around them and they are now internally driven to seek the world outside rather than being externally driven by this possibility that they could. Okay, so let's see what happens next. Elias, will you pick up? There's going to be some individuation between father and son in this next paragraph. The Gemara the Gemara recounts their second return to civilization. You make fun yes. of me, not funny, my friend. They emerge from the cave and again encounter people seeking their livelihood through ordinary means. This time, though, Rabbi Eleazar Garden Schwartz would destroy something through his fear gaze. Fiery. Fiery gaze. Thank you. Um, Rabbi Shimon, his father, would kill it. Uh, presently, my son, the world has enough total devotees of Torah study in you and me alone. Wow, they are so full of it themselves. We need not to hold others to our standard of devotion and diligence. So I just want a, a brief note here. The father and son have been like one for all these 12 years. Um, and now the son still has got like this um, intensity and fiery anger. The father seems to be softening a bit. 
there's some individuation. What do you make of this? I, well, I'm clearly, sorry. No, uh, we don't know how, how old was the son when they left. We don't know. So yeah. perhaps, perhaps he didn't experience much of living in community. Yeah, I, I was just gonna say, I'm so intensely mindful of how much harder it is for the kids to come out of this than it is for us. Like Say more. For us, I, I mean, even 12 years in the life of somebody who is right. is old is like he, he gets at some level that ultimately he's going to have to chill <laughs> from his standards. It wasn't what his, his life really was about, the majority of his life. Um, serving serving God in this intense way was was really a privilege for him in this time he freaked out a little he was emotionally raw um, as as all are um, but ultimately in this extra year he's able to find his way back to engaging mm. to living in a world to dealing with an imperfect world um, and I think for for those who are younger for whom, what they're experiencing is a bigger portion of their wow. lives. And by the way, what his father taught him, like this, this is not just Torah. This is his father's Torah. And, and he has internalized it and he's carrying it around with you. And I, I'll just share, uh, you know, in a very raw way that one of my son's uh, friends had a birthday party outside at a playground uh, about a week and a half ago. And I took him, it was like 25 minutes into Arlington. I mean, Ugh. Anyway, so <laughs> can't get there from here kind of places. And and we went and, and there we are and we got to the playground and there's, you know, presents and kids and, and there were a lot of kids. And and my son said, no, I'm, I'm not going. And I got him, I managed to get him out of the car mm. and and he simply could not engage with the people there. And by the way, we're... Back to that, you know, the year, right? And the, the timer going off. I, I was in a position of the 12 year because in truth, the kids actually were a little too close to each other. Right. The kids actually, and, and we're not done with the pandemic. And there was a sense in which, like, can I really do what I would have done before the pandemic of like pushing him go play? Or is he holding on to something that's actually still true, which is I'm not yet comfortable sitting on that slide with you, you know, back to back right there. Wow. And it, that's a, such a, you know, very important insight, Michelle. When I, when I think about, when we think about, let's say our preschool kids who have masks on all the time or our younger kids, they can't remember a time without masks. Like they think masks are normal. But our preschool kids know nothing but masks. Our younger kids know nothing but masks. They can't remember a time without masks are normal. So I, th I think you're absolutely right that generationally, depending on how much tire you have in your tread before the pandemic. Yeah, in years to you, come in Purim, they are going to wear masks just for fun. Yeah. Okay, this, <laughs> Michelle, we can pick up, pick up the end of the story. Um, so the father is, is softening. The Gemara continues as night began to fall. As night began to fall late Friday afternoon, Rabbi Shimon and his son saw a certain old man who was clutching two bundles of myrtles and was running home with them as twilight descended. They said to him, these myrtle bundles, what, for what do you need them? He answered them, they are in honor of the Sabbath. Rabbi Shimon and his son questioned, but could you not have sufficed with just one bundle? 
He answered them, one is for Zachor and one is for Shamor. Hearing this, Rabbi Shimon said to his son, look how cherished the mitzvot are to the Jewish people. Each nuance of the law they celebrate separately. And they were appeased. Oh my God. Okay, what do we do? What do we do with this? So story? beautiful. What do we do with this? I mean, what 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 do we do with this? What do you think? Copy in the. So well, the, in the sense, you have to relearn again how to dan the kol adam like how to judge others. Um, when they come out of their their cave, they're all about Torah. They're all about mitzvahs. They're all about God. They're all about this direct connection right. up and being the best you you can be. And when they get back out in the world, they see the worst in the people who are out there. And in this beautiful story, they find a way to merge because they stop and they ask a question. They actually have to linger long enough to try to understand the motivation behind what looks on the surface right. to be a not Torah mitzvah does, move. Does anyone here find this story super scary and this resolution super unsettling? Totally. Yeah, with the answer resolution. Oh, I'm okay. sorry. Um, it's why are you? Why, I find this just a super scary, um, super frightening, super unsettling resolution. Why? Why do you find it something like that? It doesn't feel like a resolution. I mean, I, I love your Torah about them asking a question and feeling the answer and being present. But what I see is they just they happen to be leaving the cave when it was about to be Shabbos, and so like what they happen to see is people getting ready for Shabbos instead of doing their regular work. And so it's it's coincidence. It's not an intentional change on their part. Right. And by the way, by the way, they're only at peace because this guy's both a, a farmer and a Jewish scholar who can, you know, reap and sow two myrtles, whatever a myrtle is, and say Shemar of Zachor because I know about the two revelations of Sinai. So for this narrow band of person who's farmer and scholar and Shemar and Zachor with the two myrtles, they're at peace. But the first guy was just a farmer. What's wrong with that? They can can't deal with difference. Mm, they can't can, deal with no, anybody who's not like them. I, I find it super I, unsettling. I need to bring up something, please. Yes, please, Elias. And, and then, then I get to your point. Please, I'm going to do it quickly. So the next paragraph that we don't read is fabulous. So you know when, when rabbis and cantors, we love each other all the time. There has been never any conflicts among any history among rabbis and cantors. So I'm sure rabbis love when cantors take one word and they go up and down five scales and come back and take forever. So this is what produced me in the other way. So it says that the guy, before went into the cave, he could do 12 answers to one question. So for me to read it from the cantorial perspective, I would say, now he matured. Finally, he's able to provide one definitive answer to the problems. And they say, now he can offer 24 answers to the question. This guy needs to go to a mental institution. You know, it's unbelievable. He cannot be decisive. He cannot, anyways. So this is my view on it. Um, but... What you are saying was, it's really scary. Of course, it's really scary. The the outcome and and you know, this this ending is kind of like a movie, Hollywood movie. You know, oh now Shamor Vesachor, we appreciate, we understand. So right. beautiful. See, I I, but, I disagree. Well, hold on. Lord Nelson, you want to? No, 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 just something? Elias, finish your point, and then Dan, you're next. No, no, no. I thought you wanted to do on a scale up and down. Um, so uh, I don't see it. You don't see what? I don't see that this is going to end like Shamor Vesachor or so. Right. It's a very, it's a Hollywood ending, and it takes somebody who's farmer, scholar, to make them appease. What happens when they just go to CVS? What happens when they have to fix their gas? What happens when they have to change their oil and they go and they have to sit and wait 
for the person to change their oil for half an hour, and they're actually exposed but, to the world but of that's people the who point, are not is that The Shamor Vizahor guy is their training wheels, right? That's their opportunity. That's their, I stop, I ask the question, I try to see the right. Tzelem Elohim in the person before me. Right. And when I study not only my divine connection to God without okay. my clothes up to my neck, but I actually start to study people, I discover that inside of them is a beautiful Torah as well. Okay. Okay, so, so we're gonna, Dan, we're going to hear you, and then I'm going to close with a very simple question. Dan, last comment. Okay, so um, I disagree, and I'll tell you why. Because the first time they emerge from the from the cave, they're saying that they, and they see the farmer. They say um, he's not doing the pursuit of Olam Haba. He's not studying for Olam Haba, and they're not there. Uh, but the second time, now uh, this time, they're they're noticing that. Um, that people can can uh, you know can can do both. They can be regular people. And the other thing is, I, I say that that um, that they're also recognizing that the average Jew does know the difference between Shamor and Zahor. It's not, not this guy's not a Torah scholar. He's just an average Jew, you know, Jew in the pew that just happens to be r rushing home for Shabbat. Um, so I, I, you know, and I, and I, the other thing is, I, I just think it's in a that that there there is a there is a so the father has a definite substantial change from the first time that he emerges from the cave where he now now where he now can see where he now can see that that people if you don't if you're not thinking only of Olam Haba, but if you're thinking of this world uh, and doing the mitzvot that that that's actually a part of God's intention as well okay so thank you Dan so I want to just zoom out for a second and close with a simple question what do we learn about this story of leaving a cave as we think about leaving our cave What's the lesson from this story about cave leaving for our own existential state of cave leaving? Elisa? So I think one thing that comes out of this is, um, you know, Elias, you said he's, his inability to, set, to edit himself, his inability to be concise, his inability to function, the, the rabbi's inability to function within what others deemed acceptable meant he should go to a mental institution. I think there are ways in which we feel like Sometimes when we don't fit in, when we don't belong, we have to pull ourselves away. And when, when the world is broken, we have to pull ourselves away. And I think that this story teaches that there are, there's power to sometimes pulling yourself away. Um, there's power to taking yourself out of the game and taking some time to download the wisdom that you need to solve future problems. But that's not an answer. That's not an acceptable answer. That actually what we desperately need is for each one of us to be functioning in the world in a way that we support one another, in which we see the best in one another. What we really need is to be able to be together in community downloading wisdom from Shemai. We, we need to, to create a world in which each person has the capacity to do their best work in the context of community, and they don't have to go to a cave to get that done. Mm. Elias, what's the lesson for you? The lesson is, as, as everything we do in life, we are used to do things, and then when we stop doing them, uh, it's hard to come back and re-entry and, and do it in the same way we used to do it. And um, it's it's also this idea of the balcony scene, you know, how you, you see things when you are not doing them anymore, and the challenges that it presents. And that includes us re-entering society after the pandemic. Dan, what's the lesson? Yeah, I think um, the I think the lesson is that it takes a substantially long time to move 
back into what was was the normal and that maybe the normal is not, not even going to be the same. Mm. Michelle? Michelle? To me, there are a number of things, maybe 24 answers. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were Rabbi who? Uh. No, I, I mean, I, I would start with leaving the cave is not easy. It, it wasn't easy to go into the cave, and it's not easy to leave the cave. And I, I think that's just an obvious truth, and that we have to check. And this story reminds me that we have to check and be mindful of the places that we're raw and, and just hold that and hold that for ourselves and hold that for others because there are going to be people who are on fire when, when we get back, and, and we have to try to think about creating space for that for that sense of incineration that is mm. coming in, in in not only our own emotions, but in everybody else's emotions in those spaces and places. And then I think they're, they're changed, not, not right away, but, but they're changed by this experience. And my hope would be that God willing, A, Elijah should come and tell us that we're ready to go um, at our Pesach Seders. But I, I think in the same way that every Jew knows Shamor and Zahor, like, you know, that lighting the Sabbath candles back in their ages for keeping and remembering, so too we're coming to the holiday of Passover. And, you know, wherever you are, most Jews around the world are celebrating Passover at some basic level. And that in, in our celebration, which is different um, this year, that, that we should see in each other a shared history, a shared destiny, and that when we come back together, whenever that will be, that we could look for the best in each other, be changed by this time away from each other so that we're stopping to ask the question, like, who, who are you? How are you? What, what are your values and your beliefs? Um, and that we really can build a world in which we are appeased and can come back together again. Thank you, guys. So I'll um, just build on everything that everybody said. I think this story is about the need for patience. Um, this, we're in a hot mess. We are in a hot mess. And even if the numbers go in a good direction, and even if vaccinations go up, and even if we're in for reopening, and even if summer camp is ramping up, and even if you could go to Fenway, hot mess is where we live. And there's just turned to be tremendous rawness. And and when I was, you know, when I saw this woman who I didn't even know from Adam, and, and I thought enemy of me, and she thought enemy of me, and we went that way. That is how we have been programmed for a year. We've all been warped by that. We've all been damaged by that. We've all been maimed by that. We have been maimed by that. We now see somebody who's not in our pod as somebody to avoid, which is exactly counter to how we were before the pandemic. It's going to take a long time to unlearn that, to see somebody and say, oh, how are you, and to connect. We That's just like been fatal and lethal to do that for a long time. So to be able to go from like that to, oh, to encounter, that's just such a complete subversion of what we've of our pandemic conduct. That is hot mess. And that means a lot of raw. That means a lot of rage. That means a lot of incineration. That means a lot of unsettled. And I think this is about if we can acknowledge that, we need to be patient with one another and we need to be patient with ourselves. We need to be super patient with ourselves. Shabbat Shalom, Chak Sameach, have a fabulous Sameach, set of everyone. Chak Sameach, Shabbat Shalom.